from the author of the book by the same name. It's the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast with Mark McRae. Welcome back to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. I'm Dan Klink, of course, joined here with our good friend Mark McRae. Last week was all about He-Man, Dungeons and Dragons. Where are we at now, Mark? We're going to fast forward to 1985. She-Ra, the Princess of Power. He-Man so, is going so strong. Let's do a spinoff. Yes. Let's do something. <laughs> let's, let's, let's try to bring in more of that market share. Mm-hmm. More of the market share and more of the girls since, you know, little girls were playing with their brother's He-Man toys. I had friends growing up, girls that didn't play with dolls at all, you know? They didn't fall into any of those stereotypes of girls playing with with girl toys and boys playing with boy toys. Uh, one of my neighbors, I remember she had a Johnny Lightning racing track. Oh, cool. And, jo- and Johnny Lightning was the rival to the Mattel Hot Wheels toys. But I thought it was cool that that she had the track and she lived across the street from me and I was able to <laughs> go over there and play with Johnny Lightning racing cars. Right, and right, so right. that was the other added value. She was like the only girl in my neighborhood who actually liked playing with boy driven toys. So it was interesting. But not to get off topic, uh, <laughs> He-Man and She-Ra and the Secret of the Sword, you know, it gets a big screen theatrical treatment. And, uh, you know, the story, the origin of how things start is that the sorceress is having a nightmare about She-Ra. She wakes up and decides to summon He-Man because now, thanks to the nightmare, she has a a clue as to where the kidnapped She-Ra may be. It's a really funny cut to Adam in his civilian identity in the kitchen baking with Cringer. (laughs) And Cringer is looking forward to eating, but it kind of reminds me of a shaggy Scooby moment. How domestic. (laughs) Before they get summoned by the sorceress to go on this mission. He-Man shows up at Castle Grayskull and the sorceress gives He-Man the sword which is, you know, it turns out to be Shira's sword, and tells He-Man to go through the dimensional gate and find the rightful owner of the sword. And He-Man says something to the sorceress like, wow, this sword looks just like mine, except it has a little jewel in it. Right. You know? And, because uh, girls so like jewels. Walk- That's right. Mattel. <laughs> Mattel. <laughs> and so he walks through the dimensional gateway that the sorceress provides him there's another sword out there (laughs) and we and we use sorcery to send him to go get it (laughs) right and it's really cool and interesting because unlike on eternia shira of course in the beginning as as adora is working for the bad guy she's working for the horde and she's brainwashed into thinking that they're the good guys and of course you know the re- the truth is revealed and she joins the rebels to help take hordak down and what is cool is that shira's world is so much different from he-man's world because Evil has won on She-Ra's world. She right. has lost. They have lost the battle. And right. She-Ra and her friends that live in the forest are considered rebels. And as you mentioned, you know, when we were talking about this earlier, you know, they're part of the um, insurgency that's happening on the planet. Yeah. And there yeah. are some serious things that go on in this world. You know, there's an episode that talks about 
book burnings because these books are revealing good things about the planet that the Horde doesn't want kids to know about. One of the villainesses, uh, or villainous, rather, huh, villainesses, okay, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Shadow Weaver gets an origin story that is uh, sort of Darth Vader-inspired in the episode Price of Power, where we see how she was working with the rebels, and she betrays the rebels to get this power to become Shadow Weaver. It's a pretty serious story. I mean, a lot of times villains in these type of shows don't get an origin, but you get to see like a little background of Shadow Weaver and her motivations and why she did what she did and, and why she works with the Horde right. currently. Right. Uh, that episode was written by uh, Michael J. Straczynski, actually. Yes. Uh, a longtime and, and fabled television Author Shira was operating uh, on such a higher level than He Man. Uh, I'm, I'm just, Agreed. I'm just, I'm just gonna say it. I'm just gonna right, right. I mean, yeah, He-Man, I, I agree. You know, I, I, you had uh, you had Skeletor. He lived up the street. They knew where he was the whole time. Uh, <laughs> you know, and He Man uh, acting as kind of the uh, the muscle of the state, right? His, his right. you know, King King Randor, his dad. Uh, you know, he's, he's the government, uh, and Skeletor would, uh, you know, start, uh, getting, getting uppity and he'd have some kind of maniacal plan and, uh, He-Man would be dispatched to go and deal, uh, really put a bandaid on the issue. It's not like they locked right. Skeletor up and imprisoned right. him or got rid of him on Etheria. Yeah. We're, we're following a, a group of, of freedom fighters book burning uh, i mean what tell me a ch any children's show that's going to give a a villain uh, an antagonist uh, an origin story that has has uh, uh that that inspires some level of sympathy that that adds almost a tragic uh villain dimension to them yeah yeah i mean i i can't think of of any um, from that era, at least, you know, it's pretty progressive for a kid show from the 1980s. And that's one of the things you can say about filmation and, you know, having an awesome writer like uh, Michael J. Straczynski is that, you know, he was willing to push the envelope a lot. Right. You right. know, and it's good that in some instances, they they said yes to things in, in terms of story and content. That just kind of gives Shira an extra uh, layer of coolness to me because everything wasn't peachy keen and wonderful and with flowers. And the fact that, you know, I mean, there was some serious battles going on. All the time. All the time. Yeah, they were fighting for their, not even, for, they were fighting for their lives. They were fighting for their, for their freedoms. Right. You know, you didn't, you didn't have that level of consequence with He-Man. No. Uh, not not to all. knock on He-Man. I'm not saying that He-Man is less than. <laughs> I'm just saying she was kind of more than. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. One of some of my favorite He-Man episodes are the ones where they have to team up with Skeletor because the stakes are that high. And you know Skeletor is going to try to betray them after the crisis is over. But Always, always. But, but other than that, it just seemed like the stakes were always super high with She-Ra. Always. Because the right. Horde, there were more countries and cities and people to conquer. And so that was always a constant thing. It was not going away anytime soon. Hordak possessed an army and ruled an empire. You know, Skeletor had, uh, 
he had his bros, you know, he, <laughs> he, he had his dudes, you know, uh, his friends, you know, Evil yeah. Lynn, you know, right, he, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. they'd sit around a plot. Yeah. 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 He, he had his crew and, um, and a crew like, you know, Evil Lynn sometimes would, you know, she had her own reasons for why she stuck around. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Skeletor, you know, she would often say, once he gets the power, you know, I plan to take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, yeah. uh, there's an episode where she teams up with Tila and, I, yep. and, and Tila says to her, why do you work with Skeletor? And she basically says, because Skeletor wants power. And once he obtains it, I plan to use it, you know, for my own means. And so she's basically saying, I'm going to betray him, you know, and I think Skeletor knows that too. So, you right. Know, um, right. There's no no honor amongst thieves or or bad guys. So a really great show. Uh, moving on. Also in 1985, we had Goldtar and the Golden Lance, which is a Hanna Barbera production. And yeah, I don't was, I don't remember that one. Uh, yeah, so I'll, much. I'll be honest with you, I don't remember it either. <laughs> okay, well don't 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 tell Goldtar. I don't want I don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> All right. I actually found out about this series when I started working at Cartoon Network. My first job, I was the Cartoon Network librarian and it was my job to, you know, pull tapes for the networks. Right. And that's where I saw the gold tar tapes. And so I looked it up and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what that show was about. But it was syndicated. It was part of the uh, fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera, which was like a rotating series of different animated shows that Hanna-Barbera had put together in a syndicated package. And um, it has a lot of uh, elements of He-Man. So... In 1985, you know, you have Shira and, and Goldtar is going. And so I feel like this is uh, Hanna-Barbera's version of He-Man done under their own terms. Right. You know, it's a beautifully animated, executed show. The hero is blonde and sort of resembles He-Man, Goldtar. And he's working with Princess Galita, who looks like Tila from the He-Man series. I mean, she has red hair like Tila. They don't actually resemble. Also, if I'm not mistaken, voiced by the same uh, voice actress? Yes, yes, correct. Linda Gary voices Princess Galita. You know, there's a bad guy named Tomac, uh, who's not so much like Skeletor, but more like Hordak. I mean, sure. he's, he's, he's basically decimated this planet and he has a weapon. It's a shield, a magic shield that if it's put together with the golden lance that Goltar ends up getting, then he has the ultimate power. Uh, what's really cool about this series is that Goltar, we actually get to see Goltar get the golden lance. As opposed to Black Star getting his uh, Star Sword, okay. and and Goldtar has to you know sort of go through a test in order to get the Golden Lance. You know he basically has to have a pure heart, and he passes that test, and he is given the Golden some, Lance. Some Joseph Campbell type stuff, <laughs> yeah, you know, hero's journey and whatnot. Right, exactly, and um, and then Goldtar and Princess Galita they go on their quest. And apparently, Tomac knows that Goltar is coming because the shield that he has that is usually partners with the um, the Golden Lance somehow alerts Tomac that 
someone has possession of the Golden Lance. Because mm. apparently, Tomac tried to get the Golden Lance for himself, but because he isn't of pure heart, it didn't happen. Right. And uh, that also kind of reminds me of a storyline with Samurai Jack, where oh, Aku, sure. Aku somehow gets the sword and he tries to use it against Samurai Jack and he can't. Because right. the sword does not respond to anyone who is evil. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, and uh, so it's kind of cool to see the same concept in uh, Goltar uh, show up. Very interesting. It's also a little dark, too, because, you know, it is yeah. revealed that Goltar and Princess Galita's family perished during Tomac's war and just pillaging and and doing terrible things so i thought that was kind of interesting also that these these poor kids well i guess they're teenagers that they're orphans that also made the story a little bit more serious and less he-man <laughs> as right. well right so like i said a different take and they had a really great creative uh, team on this show. Um, Joe Totario, who was the NBC executive who greenlit the uh, Star Trek animated series. At one time, he was the uh, programming chief at NBC. Uh, he worked on the series along with Larry Houston, who has a prolific animation career and worked on the uh, X-Men animated series. Uh, Floyd Norman, a very noted and respected Disney animator, also worked on the show. And Mike Swanigan, who was a Filmation employee who, who along with Daryl McNeil, wrote the, f the first Filmation book uh, back in the day. And so they had a, a pretty good um, creative team working on this series. Um, what then what? Because, yeah, I'm looking at this list of creators. You have heavyweights and soon-to-be heavyweights all involved in this. What? Right. Uh, how come I never heard of it before? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what happened? I don't know. I mean, um, again, it was syndicated, so it might not have been airing in every market. They might not have been able to sell it to all the different, uh, all the different markets and get it out right. there. Right. Right. So that's, that's why maybe it got missed. The other thing that I thought about too, if any of these shows were on cable television, cable television back in the eighties was not exactly, um, penetrated through a lot of neighborhoods. Right. You know, right. uh, one of the first jobs I had was working at this company called Group W Cable. Um, back in the day. And um, I remember all of Manhattan was wired for cable, but the outer boroughs like the Bronx, where I grew up in Brooklyn, where I also uh, lived for a while, didn't have cable at all. You know, oh, so, so they, so yeah. they made. Yeah. And so if any of these series or programs ended up on some type of uh, uh, cable station, and you didn't have cable, you you might have you missed know, it. No, yeah, nothing. And kids out there listening now, don't 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 ask the question. Well, why didn't you just get satellite? Because back then, <laughs> a satellite dish was between twelve to fifteen feet across, and when you would switch from one satellite, as in up in the sky, to another to get another channel lineup, the dish would physically rotate. So no, it's not like from your apartment in the Bronx, you're going to get. No, DirecTV didn't exist, kids. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. Either you had cable and, or you had rabbit ears. That was it. Right. So one of the arguments I used to hear a lot of times when working at the network was, say, a show like He-Man, for example. If He-Man had come out during a time when, when cable television was strung up or, or fully penetrated, it might not have been the biggest hit 
you know, and uh, I'm like, sure. I'm not 100 mm. percent sure about that. Right. You know, I mean, because right now you still have broadcast television, you know, existing with cable well, and streaming and all yeah, those things. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Not only that, but, you know, the syndicated markets, they're not showing animation anymore. Right. You know, I don't like, uh, you know, uh, KCAL 9 or um, uh, KTLA, you know, the, the some of the uh, uh, channels I grew up with in the Los Angeles market mm-hmm. as a kid. No, it's all it's all Judge Judy and Jerry Springer <laughs> now. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. N- there, there's no such thing as as an after school lineup on on right. syndicated networks. That's that's dead. It is only cable today. Right. And that being said. You look at, you've got uh, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Disney Channel. I, I don't know if I'm forgetting any, but th- those are the three that I'm aware of. That's uh, you, that's that's three separate networks. The competition uh, in terms of, you know, numbers, in terms of, you know, how many competitors exist, seems to more or less rem- be about the same as it was in your larger markets like New York and L.A. back in the day. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it really hasn't yeah. changed. And, you know, and <laughs> I guess I can say that a lot of people that would bring up this argument, it was they were, you know, in a very passive aggressive way trying to just slam the success of an older series. Right. You know, they were just being haters. And I'm like, well, why would you even want to compare that argument? I mean, there's yeah, right. no way we'll ever really know. So why even bring it up? You know, but it's just. Yeah, no, that's kind of interesting. Just trying to throw some hater rate at, at I don't know, at at, at He Man. <laughs> yeah, it's like or, you know, yeah, you know what? Just, just let me hold your hand, friend. What's really bothering you? Because <laughs> obviously, it ain't really He Man. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. But um, but yeah, but that was you know, Goldtar kind of closed out that whole sword and sorcery era and um later other new trends would join the rankings of saturday morning and syndicated television as trends are always changing but what i found really interesting talking about the whole sword and sorcery trend is that you can see things happening as early as 1976 and how you had tarzan being this adventure show that wasn't a superhero series that came from a well-known franchise and you had Thundar, you know, kind of creating the whole sword and sorcery era and a new genre on Saturday morning. And then Black Star that rolled into Mattel toys that rolled into the He-Man series that rolled into Dungeons and Dragons and She-Ra and Goldtar. Trends are still happening on television and streaming and, I've always believed that if you can figure out what the trends were for entertainment and you're working, whether it's for a OTT service and over the top service like Netflix, or you're working for a traditional broadcast network or cable network, if you can recognize the trends that are out there that are coming, you'll always be ahead of the crowd. It's just kind of interesting to see how trends worked. Uh, back on broadcast television uh, when it came to sword and sorcery, how you can link all of those shows together in some kind of cool way. Did you ever wonder why there are 24-hour kid networks? 
In my book, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, I write about how Saturday morning became a competitive business and the proving ground for what would become the 24-hour kid network. My book covers the Big Bang of the 1960s explosion of high ratings to the early digital age of Saturday morning's last hurrah, the 1990s. You can purchase my book by going to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com and I will ship you a signed copy. All right, this is a retelling of Diana Prince, The New Wonder Woman Revisited, a classic Best Saturdays of Our Lives newsletter that was originally published back in February of 1993. Let's get started. In December of 1968, without an ounce of publicity, DC Publications made some dramatic and creative changes to Diana, Wonder Woman. The story unfolded in issue 179 after Diana's mother, Queen Hippolyta, announced that she and her sister Amazons were planning to leave Earth. As princess, Diana was expected to give up her role as Wonder Woman and accompany her sister Amazons to their holy destination. I love you and my sister Amazons, explained Diana, but Steve Trevor desperately needs me. I must stay. Diana is then commanded by Amazon law to surrender her spiritual and physical gifts in a ceremony called the Amazon Rites of Renunciation. After an emotional goodbye, Diana returns to New York's Lower East Side, homeless and unemployed. She realizes, perhaps for the first time, that she must deal with the struggles, problems, pressures, fears, hopes, dreams, and happiness that accompanies being human. Diana rents a small apartment and store in what she describes as a cheap neighborhood and enlists the help of Ai Ching, who teaches her karate and meditation. Soon her battle for justice starts anew, combating slavery, runaways, and gang violence in Them from Wonder Woman 185 and drug dealers in Angela from Wonder Woman 193. Superheroes and supervillains were kept out of the book entirely because writers Denny O'Neill, Mike Sikoski, wanted to make Diana's world as realistic as possible. She did, however, make guest appearances in other books, including The Justice League of America, issues 100 to 102, Adventure 397 featuring Supergirl, and Lois Lane 93. There wasn't much reaction in the superhero world regarding Diana's seemingly down-and-out status, but after Kara, Supergirl, discovered that Diana had carved out an entire new life for herself, commented, in a way, I envy her. Many readers did not embrace this new Wonder Woman. She no longer fit the American-as-apple-pie superhero image that represented DC Comics. Diana's world resembled and echoed the realism of the Marvel Universe, whose superheroes were going through rebirths and mutations every minute. Still, Denny O'Neill and Mike Tchaikovsky created a complex heroine who at times seemed to have mixed feelings about her mortal existence among mankind. After falling in love with a man she hardly knows, embarrassed, Diana confesses to herself, as an Amazon princess, as Wonder Woman, I have perfect control of my emotions. As plain Diana Prince, I'm human. Too darn human. The fact that she no longer embodied the cool, calm, and peaceful teachings of the Amazons resulted in plenty of action and violence for the series. Diana wasn't the only one having to make adjustments. 
after the Amazons left Earth and arrived on Olympus, home of the gods, Ares, the god of war, declared war on the Amazons, demanding the secrets of dimensional travel. Summoned by her mother, Diana returned to Paradise Island and fought by the Amazon side in the fiercest fighting witness in the pages of Wonder Woman. During another dimensional adventure, Assault on Castle Skull, from issue 192, Diana is kidnapped by the evil queen of Chalnador. After escaping, she befriends a prince named Ranagor and helps his people overtake the queen's army. During these bloody confrontations, Diana developed the kill-or-be-killed mentality. She became a tough soldier whose battles often matched the intensity and violence of DC's current espionage action-packed magazine, Deathstroke, The Terminator. Other highlights from Diana's series included Earthquaker, Red for Death, Detour Part 1 and 2, and The Prisoner. Diana's adventures ended in issue 204 titled The Second Life of the Original Wonder Woman. The story unfolds after a sniper's bullet kills Ai Ching. Diana pursues the sniper to an office building where a struggle ensues. Both combatants fall off the building. Diana lands on a ledge and is rushed to the hospital. Disoriented and suffering from amnesia, she sneaks out of the hospital steals a fighter jet, crashes in the ocean near Paradise Island where she is rescued by the Amazons. A device called the Memory Chair is employed to restore her memories. Under orders from the Queen, memories of her mortal existence were not restored. For readers of this series, Diana's transition from mortal to Amazon left more questions than answers. For example, Diana's adventure in issue 203, The Grandee Caper, was supposed to be continued in issue 204. Instead, the second life of the original Wonder Woman was printed in Grandee's place with no explanation. Since it was established that Diana's memories as an adventurer and mortal were not restored, how did she remember an enemy from her mortal past, Dr. Cyber, in issue 221? Nevertheless, the writing and illustrations for Diana Prince, the new Wonder Woman, were impeccable. Currently in the pages of Wonder Woman, finally one of DC's best-selling books, a mystery is brewing. Diana's home, Paradise Island, is missing. Perhaps the island has descended to Olympus again. Or maybe the Amazons have been summoned in search for their lost Amazon sister, Diana Prince, the new Wonder Woman of Lost Legends. Stay tuned. So, a couple of quick clarifications. I'm not exactly sure if the Amazons, when they went to the other dimension, I said in the newsletter that they went to Mount Olympus because that's where the Olympic gods reside. The reason for that explanation is because Ares just shows up and wants the secrets of dimensional travel. So it was a foregone conclusion that they probably were in Mount Olympus. What I also find kind of interesting is that I do compare Wonder Woman to a Marvel Universe character. There was a really awesome YouTube page that talks about the same thing, but I was already talking about it in 1993. Ha ha.
where comedy and commentary collide. Thunder Talk brings a unique variety show style twist to the fandom podcast genre. We drop music from some of today's hottest up and coming artists. We discuss topics, social and political relevance, and deliver our sideways take on the world at large. If stand-up comedy, NPR, the Millennium Falcon, and classic MTV had a baby, it would be Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is part of the ESO Network. Find us at thundertalk.org and on all podcasting platforms. On the next Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast, Dan and I will discuss part one of the Smurf Syndrome, a tiny trend, and how the Smurfs series coming to Saturday morning television not only changed the landscape of Saturday morning television, but also helped one network finally get out of the ratings basement. It's scandalous, people. You think the Smurfs are all utsy-cutesy and all that? No. It's, it's like the equivalent of, uh, of the Godfather behind the scenes. Oh, oh my gosh. A lot of drama behind the scenes to bring that series to TV. You have no idea. But it was all worth it, though. It was all worth it. For every for every ounce <laughs> of cue to the Smurfs, man, there is blood on someone's hand behind 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 the screen on that. <laughs> well, um, I think at this point we just want to say uh, thanks for listening, yes. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you the next time on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a co-production of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives studios and the Weirdos Workshop. To get a personalized signed copy of the Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, go to thebestsaturdaysofourlives.com. This is Mark McRae signing off. <laughs>